Don't tell me what to do. Heard that? Said that? Don't tell me what to do. It's an expression, it's a cry uh, that can be said for various different reasons with equal fervor, no matter what the reason might be. Don't tell me what to do. Here's one scenario in a marriage. You have uh, one party who is seeking understanding. And the other party responds by giving solutions. And both, of course, contrasting desires and needs in that scenario, find themselves being frustrated. The second party finds themselves, if not it, not saying, certainly thinking, uh, you don't care You don't care about what I'm trying to give you. You don't care about what I'm trying to to do for you. You don't seem to care. And the other party responds, understandably, don't tell me what to do. That's one scenario, completely understandable. Same words, slightly different context and nuance in, in, in this other scenario, scenario number two. And it, this one is, is not just in marriage. This is, oh my goodness, anywhere, anytime, any place among any of us. It, it could be peers, one giving, trying to give advice or some input or some direction. It could be a, a superior speaking to a, a subordinate, giving them some sort of edict or, or, or order or command. And there's nothing wrong with the instruction that, that's being passed down from one to the other. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever, and yet the one on the receiving end, the recipient, finds themselves just feeling down deep within something churning, something resisting, something that just erupts from deep within their heart and soul. Don't tell me what to do. It's very different than the first one, isn't it? Same words, but different sense. We struggle with this authority issue in so, so many different ways, and ultimately it has to do with our struggle with, our, with the Lord's authority over our lives. That's ultimately what the, what the rootedness of it all is. I wonder to what degree we this morning whether we realize it or not, are actually saying those very words, don't tell me what to do to Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 as we press on in this series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the first four books of the New Testament We are in the first of those, the first of those Gospels, Matthew, and it's Matthew 21. Short passage, pretty profound though, verses 23 to 27. Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. Follow along with me if you would. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together for a moment. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you put us there as witnesses of this conversation there that day in the temple courts? Men and women, children, varying ages and stages, gathering there uh, in, in a place very familiar to us and yet just so striking what was happening. Authorities, men in charge of the temple, members of the Sanhedrin colliding with this enigmatic, mysterious, compelling rabbi from Nazareth. We've heard so much. We've perhaps even some of us seen so much of him. There we are. There we are in the temple courts, and there's this collision taking place, this confrontation in these familiar environs and the setting. Pray that you'd help us to to see it, to hear it, to grapple with the implications of what we're witnessing, and that we would not leave those grounds, these grounds, this time, this moment, unchanged. We pray in your name. Amen. Question authority. That was a slogan that was coined by Timothy Leary uh, back in the 1960s. The context, of course, was the rising tide and resistance uh, towards the Vietnam War, Uh, certainly the Watergate scandal and the uh, resignation of President Nixon didn't help as that slogan began to just, well, the the tide, the momentum of all of that just began to to build. Uh, There have been some successors, if you will, sequels to that slogan, question authority, in the years since. Perhaps some of you have seen it, heard it, uh, maybe even on a, on a bumper sticker or, or two. Question authority before they question you. Uh, that would be one. Uh, dissent is the highest form of patriotism. That would be another. Uh, a third, oh, well, I wasn't using my civil liberties anyway. Uh, that, that's yet another that is floated around in today's context. All is not right, though, today, under the banner of question authority. Even uh, secular uh, sociologists and psychologists are recognizing this even even now and writing about this uh, today. You can go online and see different articles written about this. As they recognize that as as that has gone and taken its natural course in our culture and become so deeply ingrained, There's been such a heavy emphasis on individual rights that we have a real problem just working together and coming alongside one another. And it's not hard to to understand why if we're just all questioning authority. It's just not going to work. Which brings us to our text. Uh, This passage here in Matthew 21, this is one in, in a series of events in quick succession. 
this is in the midst of what is oftentimes referred to as Holy Week. Uh, this is Tuesday of that week, just reminding of where we are, what's taken place so far. Sunday, we often call that Palm Sunday. Jesus has ridden into his city, Jerusalem, as the king and been proclaimed as such very plainly, very publicly. Then Monday hits. The king comes into his temple. And he doesn't just look around. He doesn't just assess, but he cleanses. He, it's the worst sort of criticism, if you will, that he gives. And, and coupled with that is this miraculous, physical, tangible sign that he gives in the cursing, the withering of this fig tree, which is meant to be a physical manifestation, again, a sign pointing towards the inner rot, the corruption, the fruitlessness of the supposed worship and adoration and service back there at, at the temple. Okay, that's Sunday, that's Monday, now it's Tuesday. And he's back. And the people are waiting and wondering, literally, oh my God, what's going to happen next? And the religious officials, members of the Sanhedrin, are there, and they're not waiting to find out what's going to happen. They're moving in. Jesus is in the middle of teaching. They interrupt. It's like, you know, somebody, one of you, just kind of charged the pulpit or something like that, I guess. Um, they, they, they interrupt him in the middle of what he's trying to, to declare and convey to the, to the people there. Charging him, rebuking him, it's implied, uh, asking, inquiring about authority. What, who do you think you are? doing these things, speaking in these, these ways. Authority is really what's at issue here. The word comes up four times, four times in this short text. The officials use it twice. Jesus uses it twice, meaning the same thing. Authority, you need to understand just in terms of definition before we go any further, authority is not the same as power. Authority is not the same as power. Authority is the rightful exercise of power. And that's what's at issue here. Who has the right? Who has the right? What Matthew wants us to understand is that clearly Jesus has revealed himself as the rightful king. He has revealed himself to us as the rightful king with all power and all authority. Jesus has revealed himself to us as the rightful king, and we must yield ourselves to him, yield our very lives to him. Not just our thoughts, not just our ideas, not just our words, but our very lives. He has revealed himself to us as the rightful king. And the only sane response to that is to yield our very lives to him. Now, that then demands some things to, as we look at the text, and some things to think about and wrestle with. These three things, you can see it, I said four, three, three things. They're in your outline. First, our struggle, our struggle, the reality of our struggle with authority, specifically his, Secondly, the roots of that. Where is it coming from? And thirdly, the cure. So the problem itself, the roots of the problem, and the one sole cure that we have. And all of this we can see either, implicit, either explicitly or implicitly here in this text. So let's look at this together. First, our struggle with authority. And we all do, especially with his. Uh, down deep within, we, we all do. And we see this. It's re reflected, really, in what these men, these officials say to Jesus. Verse 23, and when he entered the temple, 
Try and visualize this. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Okay. So this is our, our struggle, this problem uh, that we have, this resistance that we have to his authority. It's worth considering at this point the tension, the contrast between his promise, what Jesus is offering, what he's coming to bring, and their perception of that. Two very, very, very different. They couldn't, it's, it's like, you know, mirror opposites, one, one of the other, or photographic negatives, one, one of the other. What Jesus has come to bring, his promise, and how they're perceiving all of that. Rightfully so, days before, the people had cried out of and to him, Hosanna. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A confession that was hardly borne out by their conviction. Okay? But they were right. They were far more right than than they realized. Jesus had indeed come as the Son of David, as the rightful king, to reclaim what was his and to renew it. He had come to reclaim and renew all, all things. He had come to redeem, to redeem his people, to set them free from bondage and slavery, tyranny to sin and death at the high, high cost of his precious life to redeem and to reconcile, to make the relationship between him and his, to, between his people and their God right, to bring peace, to bring shalom. He'd come to do all of that, all of that, and yet... How was his mission, his coming, his presence, his person perceived? How was he received? As a threat. As a heretic. As a blasphemer. As a false teacher. As a rabid dog who needed to be put down. Ideas have consequences. Give the the officials this much. They knew ideas and beliefs matter. Give them that much. And so if he is a heretic, if he's a false teacher, they felt like they needed to stand up to to plan, to plot, and that's what they did. They conspired and they to to trap him. And you hear it with the question. The question that they, it's not just an innocent, oh, let's have a dialogue, let's have a talk. That's not what's going on here. They're trying to trap him. If he says, in answer to their question, where did your authority come from? If he says from men, then they've got him with charges of insubordination. Ha, you're not submitting yourself to us as the rightful authorities. Insubordination. Or, conversely, if he says, and this would just have been crazy if he'd said this as far as their perspective, if he says from heaven, well, then it's not just a charge of insubordination. Now it's a charge of blasphemy. They think they've got him. They think they've got him impaled on the horns of a dilemma. They're setting a trap for him, such as the resistance, such as their struggle, which is really our struggle. This is is a picture. It's pointing us towards our own struggle with Jesus' authority. They are but emblematic of our own struggle, our own resistance to him. We have a couple of chickens, old, old biddies in our backyard in a coop. Uh, they just won't die. Um, 
I, uh, I, was, I was out, sorry, I was out in the backyard uh, letting them out one morning this past week and was somewhat surprised, to say the least, to discover that trapped up on the top of this coop under some netting was a pretty good-sized black rat snake. I discovered him like he's this far from my face, okay? And I didn't know that he was there, but he's trapped, he's stuck, he can't do anything. And I recognized pretty quickly after I recovered from my panic that um, he's, I don't know how long he's been there, but he's surely going to die if he's not set free. So I get a knife and some work gloves, and I commence to trying to free the snake. Now, judging by his response to my rescue attempts, he didn't seem, or she, he or she did not take very, I'll call him or she, Sam. It's kind of ambivalent. Sam, Sam didn't take very kindly to my attempts to rescue Sam. <laughs> Hissing and shaking the tail and coiling and all, and all of that stuff. And I got to thinking, even at that moment, it struck me. This is madness. I'm trying to save you, and you want to kill me. And then the next level of revelation, I'm, literally, it's all coming to me as I'm standing there in the cooper, leaned over, whatever it was, that's me. I'm that snake. Every time I say to Jesus, which is all the time, what are you doing? What are you doing? What, what do you think you're doing? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to mess with me like this? That's me. I'm the snake. And so are we in our response to his authority, his work in our lives. Psalm 97.1, you don't need to turn there. It's in the midst of several psalms of of a royal theme. Psalm 97 verse 1 begins with this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. That's the way we should respond and receive the message that Jesus is the king. Not not endure it, not tolerate it, not put up with it, but celebrate it. But that's not how we respond. Our response is is, is a fundamental of of a deep distrust. Back to the snake. But what if in cutting me loose you nick my scales? which I did. Or disobedience. I don't care what you're trying to do with my life. I want to go my own way, even if it's to my own harm. At least it's my way. Because I don't trust you. I may trust your power, but I don't trust your intent. My friends, Jesus has revealed himself to us as the rightful king. Oh, would we yield ourselves to him? Reality of the struggle. It's very real, very present. So we need to press into the next thing, some of the roots of this, the resistance uh, that's deeply, deeply rooted. So what's going on here with this hostile, almost intuitive, instinctive, visceral response of ours to Jesus? 
a resistance to Jesus. Layers of fear has to be at least partly what's going on. You think in terms of these men, the Sanhedrin, and how they're responding to Jesus there in the midst of the courts, possibly feeling intimidated by him, and they've never heard anyone speak this way. They've never seen anyone do anything like this. The intimidation factor, experience factor, such, okay, power and authority seems to be on display here in you, and yet all of our experience thus far in life of anyone with power and authority, is, it's corrupt. And you seem to be showing signs of ultimate power and authority. How can we trust that? Fear. Fear, but not just that. Fear of the implications. Because if what he's saying is true, then that means everything they've said and stood for their whole lives is wrong. And they're going to have to cut loose their positions of power and influence and prestige, surrender. They're afraid. It's a scary place to be. These layers of fear can be powerful motivators in resisting Jesus. But not just that, but the twisting of pride. How do they assess this situation? What are the assumptions? Well, they, right, they are members of the Sanhedrin, Israel's supreme court, if you will. And how do they view that what's going on there? Again, I alluded to this earlier. They see Jesus as a heretic. Jesus as a false teacher. They need to move in. They need to protect the people. They assume they're up to the task, the assumptions and the arrogance behind all of this. The arrogance of all this, this tragic irony, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy. What's unfolding here? Who they were and what their response was. And all of that is such, is such deep rootedness, such deep history with all of that. And, and the origin of that response traced back all the way to the fall, all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. They're in the garden, and it's been happening ever since as the infection has caught hold. Where we, as a race, mankind, was given the charge of stewardship in the name of our God over all things over in this earth, and yet we have seized the reins and insist on the charge of ownership to do with everything, including our own lives, as we see fit. Arrogance. The arrogance of that. The admixture of fear and pride in all of that. How do we see fear and pride working themselves out in our own lives? Let me give you just two examples quickly. So, pride. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. Somebody said something, did something, harsh words, harsh response. Promise broken, terrible things spoken. And I know, I know Jesus calls me to forgive. That's naive. I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I know better. What is that? Pride. That's pride. Fear. I know Jesus, to, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, demands a generous lifestyle, and a, a lifestyle of, of just open-handed giving however I can to the people around me. 
to, to tithing to the local church, to being open-handed, open-armed towards, again, everyone around me and any opportunity I can find to help and come alongside. I know that. I know I'm called to, to give as I've been given towards. I know that. But you know what? Life is scary. And, and the future is uncertain. And I don't know what's coming tomorrow, so I need to play it safe and hold back. What is that? Friends, again, Jesus has come as the rightful king. The rightful king. Oh, that we would yield our lives to him. But then that takes us to the cure. You know, if, if, if these roots are so deep, we're going to need one heck of a cure. Right? Pulling those weeds does, is not going to entail just plucking the leaves that you see at the surface of the ground. We're going to have to go deep. There's only one that can do that, and that's Jesus himself. To dislodge this, these roots. Let's look at what he, how Jesus responds to this interrogation, this inquisition. Again, get a sense of the, the craziness of what's transpiring here, who these men are and who they're asking these questions of. Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, that's John the Baptist. Where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Just a quick aside. Part of John's ministry was he was the herald of the one to come of Jesus. He's pointing, he's trying, the Lord set John, appointed him, anointed him for this task to prepare the way for the coming of the king. That's his mission. So when Jesus is talking about the baptism of John, that's, that's an encapsulation of what that is, John's message, John's mission. Okay, that's what, that's what Jesus is referring to there. The baptism of John, where did it come from, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe, in, believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The cure here is to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying and to look carefully at the person of Jesus himself. Listen carefully. What's going on here? What is he saying? This is a, his responding to their questions with other questions, and perhaps even harder questions, that was a rabbinic technique. That was a, a practice common among the rabbis of the day, how you'd enter, go back and forth, and it would debate with one another. Jesus puts them on the horns of, their, of another dilemma. They think they've got him, now he's got them. Because, and you see it here, Matthew tells us, you know, gives us a, clues us into what they're thinking, what they're saying. If they say, well, John's baptism came from men, well, then they're going to lose the support of the people. And they don't want that. But if they say from heaven, from God, well, then that begs some questions, doesn't it? So they're stuck, and they know they're stuck. But Jesus is not just doing this to stick them. 
He's not just doing this to evade questions. He's not just doing this to, to dodge the issues. He's redirecting them to the right answer, to the right questions. In essence, he's saying, if, if you answer my question rightly, then you'll have the answer to your question. Such profound wisdom on his part, such profound mercy on his part as well to engage with them, to not just blow them off, but to engage with them in this way. Listen carefully to what he's saying and look closely. Look closely. Let's think, ask two questions. First, who is making this claim? Who is it that's making, who is it that these men, these religious officials that day, who is it that they are debating with? Who is it that they think that they can entrap? Who is it that they think that they can, you know, box into a corner, if you will? And, and let's think about just going back through our series in Matthew, just not even the other Gospels, just Matthew alone. What has Matthew shown us through the course of this study? The wisdom, the divine, clearly, divine wisdom in his teaching the divine power in his works and in his miracles, the divine beauty of his character, what we see in Jesus. It's not too hard to guess who we're dealing with here. Right? Which then sets us up for the claim. The claim is the king. He is the king. And as the king, he does, in fact, have the right to rule. He does, in fact, have the right to tell us how to live and to assess how we're doing. But, you know, it's not just that. It's the king. The king also has the right to name, to tell us who we are. He knows far better than we do how to name ourselves, how to understand ourselves. And you know what he pronounces upon his people, his followers, his disciples? You are not an orphan. You are not a child on the street left to fend and fight for themselves. You are a blood-bought, adopted child of the king. That's who you are. That's your name. His. His. He has the right to rule and the right to name. And you know, that means he's worth hearing. That means he's worth trusting. That means he's worth turning to and telling of. Because he's the king. And that's what happens as we start to look closely at who he is. We begin to see so much more of the implications of his rule. Some of you may know, a few weeks ago, astronomers posted an image online using some 16 years' worth of data from the Hubble Space Telescope. 
roughly 7,500 photos uh, taken of just one, I don't know what to call it, a sector, a spot in the heavens. From our perspective, it's the size of the space that the moon takes up, our moon takes up in the, the night sky. So 16 years worth of about 7,500 photos taken of a spot. That's it, not everything else, just that spot. And you know what they saw as they looked deeply into that spot, into our heavenly sky? Over 265,000 galaxies, not stars. Galaxies in a spot about that big as you look up in the night sky. That's what they could see as they focus their gaze into the heavens. Now, my friends, how much more as we focus our gaze onto the one who hung all that, who created all that, how much more can we see as we focus our gaze upon him? Again, Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Jesus, as the king, the rightful king, his, his right to rule, yes, is a call to obedience. Let's be clear on that point. Razor sharp, crystal clear. We cannot, we don't dare water that down. That is a call to obedience, but it is also a cause for celebration because Jesus is the king. Not me, not you, not anything else. Jesus is the king. It truly is from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. And that's the cure. Grappling with that is that makes its way in, into the depths of our hearts and works its way out. That is the cure to this deep-seated pride and fear that we struggle with and the resistance. The resistance to his rule the wonder of his reign, the wonder of his reign. Jesus is the rightful king. Oh, that we would yield our lives to him. In with this. No doubt, no few of you are, know that there's a film out in the theaters right now. No, I haven't seen it. Tolkien, Tolkien. It's something of a bio on the creator of the Lord of the Rings. And J.R.R. Tolkien was a dear friend of another guy that some of you may have heard of, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is known for the writing of many, many books of many types, perhaps best known in, in this age as uh, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, the first book, the first installment of which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which sets the whole thing off. And the children, these four children, come into this land of, of Narnia. That's what we begin to read of there in that first book. And uh, it's, it's, in case you don't know, it's something of a spoiler, I'll just tell you. It's something in case you don't know. The, the lion, Aslan, is meant to be something of a metaphorical figure for Christ. And as we, you read through the course of that story, you learn something from a metaphorical uh, image, symbolic standpoint of the work of Christ. Well, the children, not too far into the story, encounter these two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And I want to read to you the dialogue that takes place in the dam. 
Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's good news. That's the best news. Jesus is the king. He's not safe, but he's good. And he's the king. Jesus has revealed himself, even to us, as the one rightful, true king. Oh, that we would yield ourselves to him. Let's pray. Oh, who, who has the authority? Who has the right to rule, to plan, to purpose, to decide, to determine? Who can protect us? Who can defend us? Who can restrain, guard us against our enemies? We know all of us whether we've thought about it, consciously made any decision about these things, we all have to make that call. Who has the right? And it all comes down ultimately to either you or something else. The creator or some part of the creation. To the one who made us or something that's been made. Who would we serve? Who would we give ourselves to? Who will we yield our lives to? You are showing yourself so clearly as the one rightful king, that one standing there in those courts that day, and who just a few days later stood in our place. The Lord reigns. Let the nations rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. May we join in the chorus of the earth and the coastlands in rejoicing in the reign of our King. We pray in your name.